I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you as each and every night, all the way from the sunny climes of Western Japan, where I live and work and have done so for the past eight years. So once again, it's great to have you on board for the program tonight. Thank you for tuning in and joining us. And this is Friday night, so we're going to be going over some work that I've done on CorbettReport.com over the past several years, dipping into the archives to try to find some interviews and videos and other work that I think will be, well, hopefully helpful for you in constructing a, a more thorough understanding of what we're facing on tonight's topic, and tonight's topic is going to be the war with Iran. And really, I think there's uh, there's little that needs to be said in terms of setting up the, the idea that we are on the knife's edge when it comes to military tension in that region generally, and specifically with Iran. So just looking over some of the headlines today on this issue, the Washington Post has a story, U.S. warns Iran to leave Persian, Persian Gulf oil route alone, Clash shows risk of larger war. Uh, Chicago Tribune has a story. Iran ships approached U.S. vessels in Gulf. And for people who know, of course, uh, Seymour Hersh revealed in 2008 that Dick Cheney had a plan to dress up Iranian PT boats, uh, sorry, dress up American uh, boats as Iranian PT boats, and then to launch fake attacks on U.S. ships in order to start a war with Iran. That was revealed back in 2008. And, oh, lo and behold, there is mounting tension once again in the Strait of Hormuz and the uh, Persian Gulf generally. And uh, now we have ominous reports of Iranian ships approaching U.S. vessels. So they're setting the stage all over again for the exact same false flag attack route that they were going to use in 2008. Al Jazeera has the story, Ahmadinejad, Iran will not bow to pressures. Uh, The National Post out of Canada has this story, Iran pressing on with nuclear plans despite growing support for oil embargo. Of course, uh, what are those nuclear plans? Well, that's the million-dollar question, and one that we'll get to later in tonight's broadcast. Uh, And we have this one from BBC News, probably the most ominous of all, uh, in my estimation. Iran nuclear expert buried as Russia warns on sanctions. And I think that's really the issue of what we're dealing with in the eventuality of an Iranian war or some sort of military strike or intervention, is that, of course, a war on Iran is not just a war on Iran. It really is a war against Iran's allies, including Russia and China, who are getting more and more vocal about U.S. military interventionism in the region. And I mentioned it on the broadcast the other night with Madison Rupert, but I'll say it here again. The Chinese vice foreign minister just came out uh, recently saying that China expects all sides to respect territorial sovereignty in the region, referring specifically to Syria at the time, but I'm sure it applies likewise to Iran, which has become a vital trading partner for China with its oil. So there you go. I think we really are on a knife's edge of tension in so many ways, so it's important to really flesh out the history of what's going on here and what's happening. And in order to do that, we're going to be dipping into the CorbettReport.com archives. Once again, all of my videos and radio radio broadcasts and interviews and episodes, all of it are freely available from CorbettReport.com, so I hope you will go there to make use of that resource. 
And while you're at it, please check out CorbettReport.com slash radio, and you can find links to everything that I cite in each and every episode of this broadcast every single night here on RBN. So if you ever hear of an article or something that sounds interesting and want to find that document online, uh, there will always be a link from CorbettReport.com slash radio. So if you head there, you'll be able to find uh, all of the things that we're going to play for you tonight. So when we come back from the break, we're going to be dipping into the CorbettReport.com archives for more information about the war with Iran. Friends, this is James Corbett, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio. And this evening, we are going over the moves towards a strike on Iran, whatever kind of military intervention might be being uh, prepared at the moment and that we're being prepared for in the media. And it's, uh, well, a very, very worrying development for so many reasons, but uh, it's a point that I've made since really the beginning of the Corbett Report, and I will continue to make because I think it's a point that bears repeating is that World War III starts in Iran, and I don't say that lightly, I say that advisedly, because there are so many indications that a strike on Iran, no matter what form it takes, will start to embroil the entire region in a much greater conflict. And this is a point that, again, I think bears repeating and bears fleshing out in some detail. So tonight we're going to start by taking a listen to this clip of an interview that I conducted last month with Michelle Chosodowski of the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca. And I think this is a particularly hard-hitting interview in which um, uh, Professor Chosodowski really does lay out what, uh, what the entire region uh, threatens to become in the event of any one of these potential sparks igniting, whether that be a strike on Syria or Iran or Pakistan, uh, there's so many different potential flashpoints in the entire region that could set not just the region, but really the globe on fire with the repercussions. So in order to flesh this out, let's take a listen to this very important interview with Michelle Chosodowski, which, of course, is available for download from CorbettReport.com. We are evolving towards an integrated Middle East war theater, Middle East Central Asian war theater, where uh, military initiatives have been taken by the United States and its allies in Pakistan, Iran through covert operations, and Syria through the process of regime change, which is ongoing but which also consists in supporting insurgent groups within that country and ultimately ultimately destabilizing the regime. What must be understood is that all these military as well as covert initiatives are centralized. They're part of a single military agenda. They're not separate initiatives and they're not separate war theaters. So that when we look at uh, Pakistan, Iran, Syria... Uh, And bearing in mind that we already have several war theaters which are active within that region, namely Afghanistan, Iraq, and Palestine, of a somewhat different nature, what we get is an extended war theater 
from the eastern Mediterranean right through to the Chinese border. All these countries have common borders. Syria has a border with Iraq. Iraq has a border with, with Iran. Pakistan has borders with, uh, with Iran and Afghanistan. So that essentially what, what is likely to occur if a new military initiative is, is, um, is launched is that that whole region will flare up from the eastern Mediterranean right through to the Chinese border. And I should mention that China and Russia are part of this equation. We are in a, at a very dangerous crossroads. Uh, the United States and its allies are waging wars in different parts of the world. They're using sophisticated weapon systems, covert operations, regime change. Um, these are weapons of the 21st century. They contemplate the use of nuclear weapons, uh, ironically against Iran, which does not possess nuclear weapons. These are tactical nuclear weapons, which have an explosive capacity between one-third and six times a Hiroshima bomb, and they are classified, uh, and they have been classified as safe uh, for the surrounding civilian population by the Senate and can be used in the conventional war theater. Um, this is uh, a World War III scenario. It's the globalization of war. It is the long war which was defined in various uh, uh, national security documents, uh, military documents. It's the, the war without borders uh, contained in the project of the new American century, which was formulated by the neocons in the year 2000. Um, what we must understand is that uh, these uh, military initiatives, particularly those directed against uh, Iran, uh, Syria, and Pakistan, could unleash a global war. Um, uh, Pakistan is a, is a military power. Iran has advanced capabilities to defend itself, has had very large conventional forces. Uh, Syria is a country of more than 20, 000, uh, uh, 20 million population. Uh, we have the, the Russian Navy in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, China is being threatened uh, by the United States as well uh, in the South China Sea um, and uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in areas adjacent to the Korean Peninsula. Uh, and, of course, Russia is threatened on its uh, European border, uh, in other words, on its western border with the European Union, uh, on the pretext that the missile defense system is directed against Iran, but everybody knows that this is direct against, the, uh, against Russia uh, and the former um, republics of the Soviet Union, uh, many of which are tied into uh, to, uh, military cooperation agreements with, with Russia and China under the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement. So we are at a very, very dangerous crossroads. This is the globalization of war. Unfortunately, um, World War III is not front-page news. We have a lot of coverage of Kyoto, of global warming, of various other uh, soft threats, but the issue of global war and an extended regional war in the Middle East, Central Asian region is simply not contemplated. It doesn't make the tabloids and people are misinformed. The anti-war movement is 
is not involved in any meaningful action. Uh, many of the many segments of the anti-war movement are in fact supportive of uh, NATO's uh, humanitarian uh, doctrine, uh, responsibility to protect, um, and uh, uh, media distortions are, are grotesque to the extent that images are being, uh, uh, fake images are being presented uh, to public opinion to convey uh, a particular perception of, uh, of this evolving new world order. Well then, uh, Michel, given that uh, the the almost inevitable outcome of an, uh, a flare-up in any one of these regions, as you say, is is almost inevitably World War III. What really is the strat the military strategy involved here? Uh, is this is this a question of the the Pentagon planners believing that they can win all-out World War III scenario? Well, we're dealing with a very complex decision-making process where those who decide. And invariably, the civilians that decide, the people in the in the in the Pentagon and the, and the State Department, uh, who decide on particular uh, stages of military planning, and and ultimately, well, then the green light is given to a military operation. But I I think what is very important to understand is that those who decide tacitly believe their own propaganda ploy. Namely, they are not aware that the use of tactical nuclear weapons, which are heralded in military documents as as an instrument of peace, are actually weapons of mass destruction. And and, uh, they are not aware that by pressing the button of a war on Iran, that the whole region flares up, and that this is uh, that this ultimately the, the future of humanity is. Is, uh, is threatened. So that it, it's, the, it's the logic of a complex decision-making process at various levels, both uh, at the levels of politicians as well as military command. It's, it's the hierarchy of, of, uh, of, of the military command structure. It's the relationship between the United States, NATO, and, its, and, and Israel, which are the main partners in this military alliance, we're dealing with a formidable force, um, and uh, any kind of, of uh, military action could easily get under con- out of control and uh, lead us into uh, a nuclear war. This we have to understand, particularly in view of the fact that the assurances that we had, the mutually assured destruction uh, concept of the, of the Cold War year, years is no longer there, and... Uh, uh, nuclear weapons have been reclassified, and nuclear weapons are deployed. We must understand they're not only deployed by the United States, Israel, uh, and, and France, and Britain, they're deployed by countries such as Belgium, Holland, um, Germany, Turkey, and Italy. The, these countries have tactical nuclear weapons under national command, and they are directed at Iran. Very worrying developments indeed. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Delighted to be on the program.
A very sobering analysis from Michelle Chosodovsky, but I think, unfortunately, a warranted one, given all of the developments we've seen in the region generally, and with the moves towards war in every potential theater in the entire globe, and it is a theater in more ways than one. So I think we have to understand the developments that have been taking place that have led us to this point, and also what we can do to counteract the media propaganda that's going on right now, conditioning the public to lay down and accept the next inevitable coming war. And, of course, there is only one anti-war candidate on the platform at the moment. So, once again, I think people have to at least use this uh, this Ron Paul candidacy as the tool that it is to try to get the anti-war m- word out to the general public. But on that note, let's take another break, and we will continue more with more Corbett Report Radio right after this. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the Welcome back. We are here on Corbett Report Radio this evening going over the steps towards war with Iran. And it's important to understand the larger context and history of what's going on here, a history that goes back at least as far as the CIA's original intervention in Iran in 1953 and the overthrow of the uh, democratically elected Iranian leader, Mohammad Mossadegh. But, uh, But... Let's let's go into this in some more detail. I thought it would be instructive to take a look at an article that I wrote in 2009 that talked about something that uh, that perhaps many people have forgotten about at this point, but I think it's important to keep it in mind as part of the general destabilization of Iran that's been going on for a very long time now. And this article was entitled Destabilization 2.0, Soros, the CIA, Mossad, and the New Media Destabilization of Iran. And it reads in part, quote, It's the 2009 presidential election in Iran, and opposition leader Mir Hussein Mousavi declares victory hours before the polls close, ensuring that any result to the contrary will be called into question. Western media goes into overdrive, fighting with each other to see who can offer the most hyperbolic denunciation of the vote and President Ahmadinejad's apparent victory. BBC wins by publishing bald-faced lies about the supposed popular uprising, which it is later forced to retract. On June 13th, 30,000 tweets begin to flood Twitter with live updates from Iran, most written in English and provided by a handful of newly registered users with identical profile photos. The Jerusalem Post writes a story about the Iran Twitter phenomenon a few hours after it starts. And who says Mossad isn't staying up to date with the new media? Now, YouTube is providing a breaking news link at the top of every page, linking to the latest footage of the Iranian protests, all shot in high def, no less. Welcome to Destabilization 2.0, the latest version of a program that the Western powers have been running for decades in order, in order to overthrow foreign, democratically elected governments that don't yield to the whims of Western governments and multinational corporations. Ironically, Iran was also the birthplace of the original CIA program for destabilizing a foreign government. Think of it as destabilization 1.0. It's 1953, and the democratically elected Iranian leader Mohammad Mossadegh is following through on his election promises to nationalize industry for the Iranian people. 
including the oil industry of Iran, which was then controlled by the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. The CIA is sent into the country to bring an end to Mossadegh's government. They begin a campaign of terror, staging bombings and attacks on Muslim targets in order to blame them on nationalist secular Mossadegh. They foster and fund an anti-Mossadegh campaign against, amongst the radical Islamist elements in the country. Finally, they back the revolution that brings their favored puppet, the Shah, into power. Within months, their mission had been accomplished. They had removed a democratically elected leader who threatened to build up an independent, secular Persian nation and replaced him with a repressive tyrant whose secret police would brutally suppress all opposition. The campaign was a success, and the, the lead CIA agent wrote an after-action report describing the operation in glowing terms. The pattern was to be repeated time and time again in country after country, in Guatemala in 1954, in Afghanistan in the 1980s, in Serbia in the 1990s, and, uh, but these operations leave the agency open to exposure. What was needed was a different plan, one where the Western political and financial interests puppeteering the revolution would be more difficult to implicate in the overthrow. Enter Destabilization 1.1. This version of the destabilization program is less messy, offering plausible deniability for the Western powers who are overthrowing a foreign government. It starts when the IMF moves in to offer a bribe to a tinpot dictator in a third world country. He gets 10% in exchange for taking out an exorbitant loan for an infrastructure project that the country can't afford. When the country inevitably defaults on the loan payments, the IMF begins to take over, imposing a restructuring program that eventually results in the full-scale looting of the country's resources for Western business interests. This program, too, was run in country after country, from Jamaica to Myanmar, from Chile to Zimbabwe. The source code for this program was revealed in 2001, However, when former World Bank chief economist Joseph Stiglitz went public about the scam, more detail was added in 2004 by the publication of John Perkins' Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which revealed the extent to which front companies and complicit corporations aided, abetted, and facilitated the economic plundering and overthrow of foreign governments. Although still an effective technique for overthrowing foreign nationals, the fact that this particular scam had been exposed meant that the architects of global geopolitics would have to find a new way to get rid of foreign, democratically elected governments. Destabilization 1.2 involves seemingly disinterested, democracy-promoting NGOs with feel-good names like the Open Society Institute, Freedom House, and the National Endowment for Democracy. They fund, train, support, and mobilize opposition movements in countries that have been targeted for destabilization, often during elections, and usually organized around an identifiable color. These color revolutions sprang up in the past decade and have so far successfully destabilized the governments of the Ukraine, Lebanon, Georgia, and Kyrgyzstan, among others. These revolutions bear the imprint of billionaire finance oligarch George Soros. The hidden hand of Western powers behind these color revolutions has threatened their effectiveness in recent years, however, with an anti-Soros movement having arisen in Georgia and with the recent Moldovan grape revolution having come to naught, much to the chagrin of Soros-founded OSI's Evgeny, sorry, Soros-funded OSI's Evgeny Morozov. And now we arrive at Destabilization 2.0, really not much more than a slight tweak of Destabilization 1.2. The only thing different is that now Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and other social media are being employed to amplify the effect of and the impression of internal protests. And once again, Soros henchman Evgeny Morozov is extolling the virtues of new Tehran Twitter revolution, and the New York Times is writing journalistic hymns to the power of internet new media. Etc. Etc. I'll let you finish reading the article for yourself. It's up on CorbettReport.com. Take a short break. We'll be right back with more on Iran on Corbett Report Radio. 
Welcome back to the broadcast. And tonight on Corbett Report Radio, we are going over the moves towards war with Iran. And just to make the point that this is absolutely nothing new, I'd like to turn to an interview that I did in June of 2010, hard to believe that's nearly two years ago now, with Paul Craig Roberts, of course, former Assistant Treasury Secretary under Ronald Reagan. And this is an interview that I conducted with him about the moves towards war with Iran that were taking place at that time in the middle of 2010. So again, this is something that's been going on for years now. So in order to see what the context was at that time and Paul Craig Roberts' assessment of the likelihood of an impending attack on Iran in in that era, let's uh, take a listen to this video, which of course is available on youtube.com slash report. Well, I don't know how impending the strike is, but I think the evidence is uh, overwhelming that the United States is trying to create a situation in which it can get away with a strike on Iran. That's why we have the continual demonization of Iran, which is now multi-years old. Uh, We have all kinds of claims made about nuclear weapons programs, all of which have been refuted by the International Atomic Energy uh, Agency's uh, weapons inspectors on the ground in Iran. Uh, the, The refutations of the charges do not come merely from the Iranian government, but from the International Atomic Energy Agency. So there's no evidence of any weapon program. There is the the assertion uh, by the United States government that Iran has one. It's the same kind of baseless, groundless, fabricated assertion that they made about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. And what we have today uh, in the modern world is the ability of blatant propaganda, obvious lies, to take all precedence over facts. Just as the weapons inspectors in Iraq said over and over, there's no weapons of mass destruction here, it didn't matter what the facts were because the United States government was able to continually repeat a lie and the media simply accepted the lie and never exposed it and created uh, as a fact that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And we had uh, high officials of the government going on about mushroom clouds and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's what they've been repeating with Iran. So the, the UN sanctions are supposed to be a cover. Now, of course, the sanctions that were granted by the UN are not the uh, dire sanctions that the United States wanted. And so what the United States has now done is to add its own unilateral sanctions on top of the UN sanctions. And this met with a protest recently from Russia, who said, well, we went along with this because we thought that uh, this was uh, still left room for negotiation, and now here you come and put unilateral sanctions on, on top. So it's clear that the United States is trying to create a situation that will justify whatever lies the government tells in order to attack Iran. So we have here the kind of propaganda that we've not seen since the Nazi era. In fact, it may be even worse. (laughs) Hitler may have been more truthful than the United States government. So clearly, 
uh, a war is in uh, in the works if we can pull it off. Now, of course, Russia and China uh, aren't going along with it. And so we will continue to try to find some way to box them in or bribe them or threaten them or in some way get enough acquiescence that this strike on Iran is possible. Now, the flotilla is probably uh, another form of, of uh, provocation, hoping that something happens, that the Iranians do something or that there's some accidental encounter that they can use as a justification for war. So, yes, there is a very large threat, and it is the aim of the United States to start such a war. All right, once again, I will let you listen to the full interview for yourself, and again, you can find it at CorbettReport.com slash radio. There will be the links in the documentation section for tonight's broadcast to all of these videos and articles and interviews. But moving right along, I'd like to flesh out really where we stand today and what the current context for the strike on Iran is with the uh, pumping up of the recent IAEA report that didn't actually say anything new about Iran's nuclear program, but which is being said as if uh, we're being told that it it really said something startlingly new. So this is a video that I put together last month for GRTV, and it's uh, about war with Iran, history and consequences. Welcome. This is James Corbett of The Corbett Report with your GRTV backgrounder for globalresearch.ca. This month's release of a new International Atomic Energy Agency report into Iran's nuclear energy program has caused a flurry of diplomatic activity, political posturing, and breathless news headlines about the supposed imminent threat of an alleged Iranian nuclear weapons program. Given the nature and tenor of the coverage of the report in the mainstream press, one might be forgiven for believing that the agency has in fact uncovered new signs that Iran has made any concrete steps towards creating a nuclear weapon since it suspended that program in 2003, or that there is any evidence whatsoever that Iran has made any progress in the development of nuclear weapons technology. In reality, however, the report contains no new information about Iran's alleged attempts to create nuclear weapons a fact quietly conceded by even the most hawkish opponents of Iran's nuclear program, including former weapons inspector David Albright. This is really very, very important. David, what actually did the report say? Did it say that Iran has the technology for a device right now? Well, it knows how to build a crude nuclear device. It's learned enough. It doesn't have the, the key nuclear material to do it, but it learned a lot. It had, and prior to 2004, it had a well-structured nuclear weapons program that if it hadn't stopped under tremendous international pressure in 2003, it probably would have succeeded today. And is the report saying or predicting when a nuclear weapon can be built? No, it's not, because it, 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 the report clearly says that some things have continued after this abrupt halt in 2003, but it's been, a little, it's been unfocused, and it doesn't appear that they, for example, know how to build a warhead that could be put on a ballistic missile. Nonetheless, this is going to be the foreign policy issue for this president and the next president. Mm-hmm. So, Karim. 
However, because the report fails to state whether Iran's efforts have resumed or tapered off since 2003, there's still no concrete reason to think it poses a genuine threat. Likewise, the report does not indicate whether Iran possesses weapons-grade enriched uranium or the capacity to produce it. To that end, talk of military strikes could be premature unless justifying this type of action was the report's original purpose. And that is what everybody's talking about. Well, the New York Times reported that the head of the IAEA actually went to the White House and presented his findings 12 days before it was released. I mean, why does the U.S. get to check it off first? I mean, it's the IAEA, it's the United Nations body. Why does it why is only one party um, given access to it, or is it to check, make sure the, uh, the outcome is right? I mean, it does look a bit suspicious here. I don't see it as, as much suspicious at all. Look, if anyone's going to take military action, it will probably be the United States, and that's why the United States has the strongest encouragement to seek sanctions so that we don't have to rely on the last resort, which is military action. Given the distinct lack of any new evidence whatsoever to support the contention that Iran is in fact developing nuclear weapons, the question may well be asked why this report is being trumpeted so loudly in the press and why the public is being told there is the need for urgent action on this case. The seeming paradox of an urgent need for action on an issue that has in reality remained static for nearly a decade is resolved when one understands this recent round of fear-mongering as a small part of a much longer history of Western interference in Iranian politics, a history that stretches back for the better part of a century. In 1941, British and Soviet forces executed a joint surprise attack on Iran. The British were concerned about their Anglo-Iranian oil company interests, the Soviets ended up securing petroleum concessions before their withdrawal in 1946, and both were interested in securing the Trans-Iranian Railway for the Allied war effort. When Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh was elected Iranian Prime Minister in 1951, he nationalized the country's oil reserves, thus enraging Britain, whose Anglo-Iranian oil interests were once again threatened. The British began an Iranian oil embargo and secured U.S. help in fomenting a coup that succeeded in overthrowing Mossadegh via a CIA operation codenamed TP Ajax that was led by Kermit Roosevelt Jr., the grandson of the former U.S. president, Teddy Roosevelt. The coup ushered in a new era of brutal dictatorship in which the Shah ruled with an iron fist, protected by the bloody rule of his secret police, the much-dreaded Savak. In 1979, an Islamic revolution led by Ayatollah Khomeini deposed the Shah and installed a new Islamic Republic, although reports persist to this day that Khomeini had been protected and promoted by the British, French, and Americans, who had become wary of the Shah's nationalist tendencies. In 1981, the American hostages who had been seized at the U.S. Embassy during the revolution were released in what is now widely acknowledged to have been a political deal cut with representatives of the Ronald Reagan campaign, a deal which supplied Iran with weapons and access to U.S. funds in return for delaying the release of the hostages until Reagan had been elected president. In 1988, American forces shot down an Iranian commercial airliner with two SM-2MR surface-to-air missiles over the Straits of Hormuz, killing all 290 passengers and crew, including 66 children. It had been shot down by an American cruiser which was in Iranian waters at the time of the incident, and the plane had been in Iranian airspace at the time it was destroyed. The U.S. never admitted wrongdoing for the incident, nor so much as apologized, although it did pay a $61.8 million compensation package as a result of International Court of Justice proceedings. In the light of this historical background, the current round of Iranian hysteria has to be seen as only the latest version of a very old story of imperial conquest in Persia, and part of a greater strategy to dominate one of the key countries in the Middle East. 
In its latest iteration, this story relies on the exclusion of a central hypocrisy. That the only nuclear power in the Middle East is in fact Israel, a country with the sixth largest nuclear stockpile in the world that is not a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and whose weapons have never even been formally acknowledged, let alone inspected, by the IAEA. In this story, Israel, the only nuclear power in the region and the largest recipient of U.S. military aid, supposedly faces an existential threat by the idea that one day the Iranian government might actually develop the capability of constructing a single nuclear warhead. Nevertheless, Israel has been at the heart of the latest round of warmongering over Iran, with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu openly rallying his cabinet for a preemptive strike on Iran on the same day that reports emerged of a secret meeting between the Chief of General Staff of the Israeli Defense Force, Lieutenant General Benny Gantz, and the British military chief, Sir David Richards. Given the growing number of diplomats, intelligence chiefs, and heads of state who have lined up to caution Israel about such a strike, led perhaps most ominously by an increasingly aggressive China, and a Russia that still poses a formidable military threat. Many are asking what Israel hopes to gain by starting a conflict that many analysts have noted would be the most dangerous step yet on the path to a full-scale World War III scenario. I had the chance to put that question to investigative journalist Wayne Madsen, who recently penned an article on the issue earlier this week. Well, there have been a number of uh, times, uh, going back to when uh, Bush was president, George W. Bush, uh, where the intelligence chatter indicated that there was a, a possible uh, attack on Iran in the works. Uh, certainly before the 2004 presidential election, there was a flurry of, of this chatter. Uh, obviously, uh, the Bush team, uh, Bush and Cheney, may have been wanting to send a signal to the Iranians and also to the American public that uh, war with Iran was a likelihood and, and, and you know, give people the idea, well, why change change presidents uh, in midstream? Uh, why vote for John Kerry when we may have another national security issue? So we've seen this happen time and time again, but I think what, what really is changing uh, this dynamic now is the fact that Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, has actually publicly stated he's trying to get the Israeli cabinet to approve an Israeli strike on Iran. And we also know from the State Department cables uh, that were released uh, through WikiLeaks that um, Israel and Saudi Arabia are cooperating very closely, uh, military and intelligence-wise, on a potential uh, Israeli strike on Iran, which would, of course, have to overfly Saudi airspace to reach uh, Iran, and um, and then we have uh, the U.S. military shifting 4,000 troops out of Iraq into Kuwait. Uh, so, although Obama says we're leaving Iraq, uh, just look at where these troops are being redeployed. Uh, they're being re redeployed to the Gulf uh, states of Kuwait and the Emirates and Qatar, and and we have the CIA with its drone bases uh, all through the area, and so. You look, you look at this and, and the fact that the, uh, there's this leak of an International Atomic Energy uh, Agency report saying that Iran has started up its nuclear weapons production when we do know that the new director general of IAEA, Yukia Amano, uh, is uh, nothing like his predecessor, Mohammed al-Baradei. Amano is basically a, uh, a tool uh, for the United States. So he'll They'll say anything that the U.S. 
and um, uh, Israel wants him to say he's definitely not independent as an IAEA director. So all this said and done, um, I think we have to look at the real possibility that the war clouds are forming, and we had this uh, uh, explosion at, a, at an Iranian missile <laughs> production facility um, outside of Tehran just the other day, and uh, it's being suggested that uh, that was a uh, sabotage by a joint CIA-Mossad team, and we, we've seen this happen inside Iran before, using domestic terrorists, ethnic-based uh, Baluchis and, uh, and others, and uh, I think uh, this is uh, just a case that they're trying to soften up uh, Iran for a potential military strike. Now, the IAEA is preparing a resolution condemning Iran for its nuclear activities, leaving the door open for yet more punitive sanctions on the Iranian government. As the world braces for what looks increasingly like the early stages of yet another war in the volatile region, Iran continues to deny that it is seeking to develop atomic weapons, Israel continues to dodge the question of its own nuclear stockpile, and the United Nations Security Council looks set once again to be the vehicle for the justification of sanctions and potential war. All right, friends, once again, that's available on YouTube.com slash Corbett Report, and unfortunately, it has only gotten even more uh, anxious and, and on a nice edge in that region. So let's come back after this break, and we'll finish up with tonight's broadcast. minutes of tonight's broadcast so once again thank you for tuning in and going through the CorbettReport.com archives with me that's just a sampling a smattering of some of the work that I've done on Iran in the last couple of years but as I say I've been following this story basically since the birth of the Corbett Report back in 2007 so there's much more besides and if you ever want to look up some of the work that I've done in the past on any given topic of course there is a search bar in the top right corner of the Corbett Report website at CorbettReport.com just click uh, on that search bar and type in whatever word it might be, Iran or whatever, and you'll find all the work that I've done on that topic in the past, with the caveat that some of my older articles will not show up in that search engine, um, and I will work on that at some point when I get the time. But once again, I would just like to stress something tonight that I don't think needs stressing for the regular listeners out there, but for newer listeners or people who are wondering, I, I don't in any mean, in any ways, mean to say that uh, because I'm against the attack on Iran and the U.S. or any other country going in and bombing Iran to smithereens, that does not mean that I'm pro-Ahmadinejad or that I'm for the Iranian government or that I think that the Iranian people don't have the right to, to 
uh, upset their own government or overthrow their own government. Uh, I think everyone ev- anywhere in the world has the right to do that. I am against the foreign intervention and the manipulation and all of that that goes into it. The tax dollars uh, of the American people or even the Canadians like myself or other people around the world going to funding these types of destabilization schemes and all of the other uh, garbage that's gone into into the region to destabilize and terrorize the Iranian citizens, and of course it always ends up in assassinations and bloody murders and other things as the lead up to the grand event, the big bombing campaign, which of course continues to put more and more money in, in the pockets of the banksters and kill kills more and more innocent civilians. That's what I'm against. So uh, just because I'm anti-war on Iran does not mean I'm pro-Ahmadinejad. Just because I'm anti-war in Syria does not mean I'm pro-Assad, etc., etc. So again, I think most of the people out there who have listened to me for any length of time understand that, but, um, but it needs repeating because... Uh, newer listeners and viewers uh, sometimes write in with those types of comments, and uh, it just could not be further from the truth. So once again, I'm just here trying to raise awareness of what's happening and uh, what people hopefully can do about this. And on the note of Iran and what people can do about that, as I've suggested, there is only one anti-war candidate on the table right now in the American election that's getting any attention. So the Ron Paul candidacy, whatever you think of Ron Paul and his candidacy, it's at the very least an excellent opportunity to raise the, uh, the issues of war and why we have the foreign policy we have. And, uh, and so it's a good opportunity to, to get some information out on, on in the info war. But on that note, uh, I think we're going to leave it there for tonight. I truly do appreciate all of the support I continue to receive at CorbettReport.com, all of the feedback that I get, all of the tips and suggestions I get, and of course also the monetary support because independent alternative media is brought to you by you. So for all of those people who have subscribed to the newsletter or purchased copies of my DVDs, Thank you so much. I couldn't do it without you. And I'm looking forward to another interesting week on the broadcast next week. So until then, take care and thanks for listening.